Hey lovelies, before we get started, a quick note. The pre-order for my newest design, the piping dress, is open now. The story behind this design is actually quite simple. I came across this amazing waffle fabric that's from a breathable organic cotton. It's a beautiful, beautiful fabric, but I didn't want to make an all black dress. So I decided to highlight the princess seams on the style with white piping. And let me tell you, I am so proud of how amazing this really simple design came out. The, this dress features piping in the front, sleeve, and back that hits in all of the right places on an A-line silhouette that is fitted through the waist but without the waist seam that I know some of you find distracting. It's a medium weight piece that is perfect for this time of year and will take you through most months of the year as well. Truly a closet staple. The pre-order is open now, but it is closing early Tuesday morning, December 6th. That's the day after this episode airs. So I've put the link in the show notes. It's also front and center on impactfashionnyc.com. If the link in the show notes still works or you still see the piping dress online, then you can still pre-order. I'm actually going to be discussing pre-orders a bit with this week's guest, so you'll learn why pre-ordering guarantees you get the size and color you want, and it allows you to shop stress-free without any launch day jitters. The pre-orders are guaranteed to ship by January 9th. When it does come in, quantities will be super limited because my stockroom just isn't that big. Uh, Did I mention it comes in sizes 2 through 24 like everything else in the collection? If not, now you know. Uh, Pre-order the piping dress and learn more by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Ricky Itzquist, and on today's show, I talk with the founder of Factory 45 about sustainability in fashion. She shares how she detoxed herself from fast fashion, how starting her own brand led her to discover the environmental and human rights abuses in the industry. Plus, we discuss how I've quietly and slowly incorporated sustainability into impact fashion. here in our conversation, Shannon Lord did not initially care about sustainability or really even about fashion. But as she got more involved in both industries, it became more and more obvious that this kind of education was needed not only on the consumer level, but on the brand side as well. So she set out to create Factory 45, an online course for fashion entrepreneurs to learn how to launch sustainable brands. Start off by telling me what you were like as a little kid. <laughs> oh my gosh. Ask my mother. Um, she, she will not let me live it down either. She said she, I mean, this is probably an overshare, but she took me to therapy at the age of four because I was so particular and such a perfectionist about how my socks were folded. If a hair was like, oh, my head was out of place. If like just crazy perfectionist, which I think led into probably the adult I became, but uh, the therapist said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, she's a pain in the ass now, but she's going to be a great adult. <laughs> I love that. Cause so, so often the pain in the ass kids really do make the best adults. I hope so because I have a pain in the ass four-year-old right now myself. And I hope he <laughs> becomes we call that karma (laughs) exactly oh that's why my mom won't let me live it down she's just always like he's just like you he's just like you (laughs) oh that's amazing mini me's are the best yeah so I um, got introduced to you as um, as the founder of something called Factory 45, which is this really cool initiative around sustainable fashion. And I'd love to know, like, were you always interested in fashion or in sustainability? And, and how did all of that come about? 
I really was not interested in either. I wasn't, I mean, like I liked putting an outfit together, but I didn't have any background in retail or I didn't go to fashion school. Um, I definitely was not interested in sustainability. Didn't really even think about it. Um, I was what I call a fast fashion bargain bin junkie. Like I was known in college for, you know, getting out of class on a Friday, going to forever 21, buying a dress for 10 bucks and then wearing it that night, throwing it in the back of my closet and never wearing it again, um, which is what fast fashion is. That's like the cycle that they perpetuate. So, you know, the clothing's so cheap that you feel good if you wear it once and never see it again. It doesn't really matter because it was $10. Um, and so it wasn't until I started exploring the idea of starting my own clothing brand that I started to research and become interested in sustainability and sustainable fashion. What led you to want to start your own clothing brand? Like what, what was your major in college? Uh, journalism. So oh, awesome. Yeah, I was not. Yeah. Like I said, didn't go to fashion school. Um, really, I just wanted to start a business. I wanted to, I graduated in, you know, 2008, the peak of the, you know, recession, financial crisis. I wasn't going to get a real job. No one was hiring journalism at that time. You know, like it just, it was not a good landscape in terms of getting a quote unquote real job. So I decided I would, you know, use the savings that I had made bartending to uh, start my own company. And I started researching what it would take to start a clothing line. Um, and that's when I really, you know, found out that fast or fashion in general is the one of the biggest polluters of the planet. Um, attribute can be attributed to many, many human human rights crises, um, all the things. So uh, that's what led me to kind. You know, it's kind of like in true millennial fashion. Like if I was going to start a business, I was going to it was going to have a social impact. I was going to do good. Like it, I really had this inherent belief that business could be good. And that's what made me want to do something that was good for people and planet. Yeah, I definitely hear that. It's the the environmental impact of fashion is one that a lot of people don't know about. Um, because it, it's not only like uh, people have heard of sweatshops and child labor and all of those things. I think that we're kind of desensitized to those storylines to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and the way that fast fashion kind of really perpetuates those really abusive systems. But aside from that, I don't think that people realize that certain fabrics and the way that they're made and, you know, the dyes going into water runoff and, mm -hmm. you know, chem chemicals and, and things like that are all huge, huge, huge causes of of pollution. So were these things that you discovered when you were looking into your brand? Yeah, exactly. So we started, I had a co-founder at the time, we together, you know, created Revolution Apparel, which became our clothing line. But that's what we were doing. We were researching, we were reading all the books, watching all the documentaries, talking to organic cotton farmers in Texas, talking to eco-friendly supermodels in Brooklyn. We were really diving into the entire system and what it would mean to create a sustainable piece of clothing. Because this was back in 2010. So you didn't even really use the words sustainable and fashion together. That was like kind of an oxymoron, whereas now it's a little bit more mainstream. Um, but you're exactly right. Dye runoff into waterways where that's people's drinking water. Um, you know, one of the biggest ones is the amount of polyester clothing we have. Polyester takes 200 years to decompose in a landfill. 
So all those types of things led us to kind of figure out what it meant to be sustainable in a way that we could feel good about. So what did that mean for Revolution Apparel? How did you go about making it sustainable? So we created one signature piece. It was called the Versalette. It could be worn 30 different ways. It's just one garment that could be worn 30 different ways. And the uh, our main fabric was recycled. Our notions or like the trims, the drawstrings were organic cotton. And then we used natural wooden buttons. Um, and all of our like tags and hang tags were either organic cotton in the garment or uh, recycled paper that would hang off the garment. Nice. Okay. So what was that process like of finding the, you know, finding the organic cotton or finding the, the recycled paper? Was it, was it easy to do? You know, I'm assuming we're at like 2008, 2010 at this point. Yeah, we're in 2011 at this point, 2010 to 2011. And uh, it was virtually impossible. It was so hard. It took us a year and a half to find the right fabric to find a manufacturer, like a factory who would actually make the garment who was willing to work with us because we were a startup. Um, it was it was so much harder than you would have ever, like had I known how hard it would have been, I would never would have done it. I wouldn't, I would have been like, all right, well, let's go start some like other business. Um, but the good news is, you know, we, we can get into this, but we saw success in that. And it also led me to what I do today, which is help people and to start clothing brands that are sustainably and ethically made from the beginning and open those doors for them because it was so hard to get in the door for us. Right. So what, what ended up happening with, with the Versalette and with Revolution Apparel? What, where did that ultimately go? So we ended up launching a Kickstarter campaign to pre-sell our product. Um, You know, we we didn't, by the time we were ready to go into production, we had blown through our savings on product development, on traveling to see suppliers, on conferences, on coaches, like all the things. So we didn't have any money left to go into production. So we pre-sold so that our customers were essentially financing our production run for us. They They were saying, yes, here's my money. I want what you're making. And that gave us market validation to move forward with the idea. So we set our goal on Kickstarter for $20,000. And uh, by day 30, which was the last day, we had raised over $64,000. Wow. Yeah. So at the time, it was the highest funded fashion project in Kickstarter history. Um, We were featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. It was like this really cool first experience in entrepreneurship. Um, we ended up quadrupling our first production run. We went on a sustainable fashion tour of the Pacific Northwest. We filmed all these little documentary videos. It was like this really cool two years of just immersing ourselves in this industry. And then by the end of it, we were completely burnt out. (laughs) We were completely (laughs) over it. And we ended up, I ended up selling my portion of the business to my business partner. She rebranded, took it a different direction. But that freed me up and opened up the opportunity to start Factory 45. So you did Factory 45 immediately afterwards? It was about, I took a year to just do some consulting projects and kind of see what was needed um, in, in kind of like the fashion consulting landscape. And then in 2014, I launched the first uh, cohort of Factory 45. Okay, so this makes perfect sense when you like lay it out in this timeline, especially because in 2014, sustainable fashion is still a little bit of a buzzword. Like we're starting to hear 
more of it, but it's not really a thing yet. And I think that there were a lot of people, there was a lot of greenwashing going on, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of people trying to, trying to make it work, but not either from, I'm going to assume ignorance over malice, not really getting it quite right. So can you let everyone know what Factory 45 is and what the work that you do? Sure. Um, so Factory 45 is the online business school that takes sustainable fashion brands from idea to launch. Um, so since 2014, I've worked with over 500 entrepreneurs all across the globe to help them launch their brands in a way that is sustainably and ethically made. Um, so if there's an online component of the program, which is what you would think of as like an online course, videos, action steps, to-do lists, exercises, that type of thing. But then we have a whole live component of the program through um, two times weekly live classes, a co-working session and a workshop. And then we have our alumni mentorship program, which is um, handpick alumni mentors who have already graduated from Factory 45. They've already launched their brands, they're running their brands, and they've come back to offer one-on-one mentorship for our current entrepreneurs. That's a very cool system. And I especially like this idea of alumni, you know, handpicked alumni to always reference back to. That's that's really special. So what is different? What is different about launching a brand sustainably versus just launching a brand? Yeah, it's ugh, where do I begin? Okay. So <laughs> one one thing is just your fabric, right? Your fabric options are a lot uh, they're narrowed down. You don't have as many options because you're looking for sustainable fabrics and there are just less types of sustainable fabrics. Um, you're also um, kind of, you have the challenge of cost and ideal retail price. So, you know, the pushback that you always hear with sustainable fashion is it's so expensive. Well, there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason. It's it's because the sewers, the product manager, they're getting paid a living wage uh, because the materials, the fabrics are more expensive because they're in, made in a way that is less hazardous, less chemical intensive, takes more time to make. All these things go into it. So I would say that's the two major things. Also then finding a factory, again, that pays its workers a fair and living wage, has you know um, fair and clean and safe working conditions, all of those things. Do you think it's possible to find a factory that is ethical with you know that fair living wage and all of that outside of the United States? Oh yeah, for sure. And and I, you know, there's this assumption that oh, just because something's made in the USA, it's made ethically. There's like quote unquote sweatshops in the United States too. Right. So um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's possible. Um, you just have to be so careful about doing your due diligence. I tell every one of my entrepreneurs, you have to be able to visit your factory. You have to see with your own eyes, um, make relationships with your sewers, with the project manager, um, all of those to sort of make sure that everything's above board. I'm so glad that you mentioned this idea of visiting the factory. One of the, basically the main reason why I love producing in New York City and my entire collection is is sewed in the garment district here in New York City is because I'm there twice a week. You yes. know, I'm, I'm there and and I know them. And not only do I know, like you said, the project managers and the people, you know, kind of in charge, but I know and I see the people who are actually sewing the garment 
And first of all, I just think that that's like nice and cool <laughs> that you get to yeah. you know see the hands that are actually making it. That I think is so important. But aside from that, I can see that they're treated properly. You know, like I know that I can't show up between 1230 and 130 because that's lunch and they're not talking <laughs> to me then. Like that's not, you know, the, the bell rings and work stops. And that's really important to know about the way that you work. It's just a lot harder, you know, assuming a US-based brand, it's a lot harder to be as on top of things if you're farther away. Right. Yes. And I can tell a quick story about this When So when I had my brand and we had done our Kickstarter, we um, were going into production and we started producing in a factory in North Carolina. We sent them all our fabric, our drawstrings, buttons. They had everything. They started and they were doing 40 units at a time, which is not typical. Usually you would just do the whole production one run at once, but for whatever reason, they had to do it 40 units at a time. And so we got our first 40 units and I'll never forget, I was in my apartment in Austin, Texas at the time. And I, I get the shipment, I get the box and I'm opening it. And I'm so excited. It's like our first product, our first look at what we're going to be sending out to our customers. And half of the garments could not be used. <sighs> there were holes in them. There were missing buttons. There were missing drawstrings, like the unusable garments. And so we obviously contacted our factory. What's going on? We can't use these. Like what's the next 40, 40 units going to look like? And the next 40 units came the same way, half unusable. And it wasn't until we flew across the country to North Carolina, put our feet in the factory. You know, we had been there once before for product development, but we were there during production. We brought in the New York Times article that featured us. You know, we shared it with the sewers to get them excited about. I think we brought cookies in. Like we mm -hmm. did all of these things to build a relationship so that it was everyone felt invested in the project. And from then on, there there were no, it was like maybe one or two, you know, messed up garments, but for the most part. Uh, completely usable garments and it made all the difference. Yeah, things like that really, really show in the in the end product, which is just, I mean, listen, there are a lot of really good reasons why brands should go sustainable and ethical in their manufacturing. There are a lot of really good moral reasons, but there are also a lot of like pure business reasons mm -hmm. why it makes sense to do that. You just yes. end up with better stuff. Yes, yeah, 100% what, agree. What are some of the reasons why brands should care about sustainability specifically? I think that, you know, one of the things that I always, always say is there's no such thing as perfectly sustainable. Anytime you're making something new, it's going to have an impact. So I think it's figuring out to you what matters the most, but also makes sense for your product and your brand. You can't use sustainability as your primary marketing tactic. Your garment always has to sell itself first, right? So you, for the sake of sustainability, you cannot sacrifice fit, functionality, draping, usability, durability, all those things in the actual piece of clothing. Um, so I think that's what it is, is like knowing that you cannot probably be sustainable in all the ways. And like, also, what does that even mean? Because it's such a nuanced word, but where does it make sense to start? And then as you grow and your brand grows, where can you incorporate more elements of sustainability into your brand? Yeah. As you're saying that, I even just thought of, you know, an example in my own line. When I first started 
sustainability is important to me, but I couldn't afford to prioritize it. Like you said, Mm -hmm. with like the more expensive organic fabrics and things like that. Um, So what I focused on was buying end pieces, things that would otherwise have gone into the garbage, um, which worked in two ways. They were less expensive. So yay. Um, And also I was kind of rescuing something that would have otherwise gotten thrown away. And that was kind of my angle on it. And now several years later, as the line has grown, now I'm able to really take a look. And I actually just a couple of weeks ago got my first swatch cards for like real sustainable cotton that I'm really excited to start using um it it, yeah it comes a a brand based in Florida and I think the mill is in Brazil and they do this like these really beautiful things with yarn dyed cotton um and I'm hoping to incorporate that over the next year but that's something that I can do now you know five years down the line when I know that I have the production and the customer to support that it wasn't something that I could do five six years ago it just wasn't possible right Right. Yeah. That's a perfect example. And just figuring out where it makes sense for you and your brand and kind of the journey that you want to be on. Right. From the consumer's perspective, you know, you mentioned how you were a fast fashion junkie. I'm Mm -hmm. curious what the transition out of fast fashion, like what, talk to me about your detox process, what that looked like. (laughs) Okay. So it started with thrift stores and buying secondhand because I couldn't afford sustainable fashion. Like quote unquote sustainable fashion, you know, like organic cotton from small independent brands. So my sustainable fashion journey started with buying used clothing. Um, and that was certainly affordable. Um, and then as I, you know, got older and got more established in my career and, um, you know, started to learn to have more disposable income, really, I started to invest in, uh, pieces that I knew that I would have for a long, long time. I think that's part of it is, you know, let's say you buy a jacket from H&M. All right, fast fashion. You don't think of that as sustainable. If you have that jacket for the next 20 years, that's more sustainable than if you were to buy an organic cotton sweater and then throw it out the next year, right? So I think thinking of it in that way, um, I just like from a kind of ethical manufacturing standpoint, try to stay away from the fast fashion brands and I don't buy from them. But I'm just saying for anyone who does, that's something to think about, Um, especially if you're not immediately like, oh, yeah, I can go, you know, buy the $300 dress from that sustainable fashion brand. Right. And also it's something that you want to think about is that even if you the the real thing is this is where like the quality of the manufacturing really comes into play, because yeah. if you're seeing a really classically styled jacket from H&M, let's say, if it's going to fall apart after five wears, then there's nothing you can do to rescue that. Right. So it's it's another way to to kind of think about it is to. Yeah, I, I like that way. It's like an easy buy in, um, you know, to if you know, shop the pieces from the stores that you're already shopping at that you won't need to replace after every season. Yeah. And now, you know, even back to like the secondhand kind of route, you know, back when I was shopping, it's like, you know, it was like, you go to Goodwill, you go to Salvation Army. Now it's like a curated shopping experience. You have like Poshmark, you have Thread Up, like you don't even have to leave your house. There's so many. And then you, you have like your brick and mortar secondhand stores where they are curated and, you know, um, displayed as if it's just, you know, a regular clothing boutique. So I think that ex- shopping experience has gotten a lot better as well. So true. And also now it's not secondhand, it's vintage. Shannon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> it's vintage from Goodwill. Yeah. Didn't you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and that also, I think that that's done. I mean, I'm so happy for secondhand clothes to have gotten that wonderful rebranding. Cause you're right. It's mm-hmm. just just having something be worn is is that much more special, which is why it pays to be a little bit more discerning about the actual pieces that you bring into your closet. Because if you're gonna wear it again and again, then it becomes worth the investment you know, obviously relative to how much you're paying for it, but it can be yeah. worth a much higher investment. Yes. I love the blend of, of vintage and, um, and sustainable, sustainably made pieces. Like I think that blend, and then just with the less is more approach of being like, again, very discerning about what you're bringing into your closet. Um, I love seeing that that's sort of the direction that a lot of consumers are going. Yeah, I think I think it's a really great development. Also, is there are there any other easy buy-ins that you could think of, like a for for any fast fashion junkies that are listening? You know, are there any other easy ways you think that people could not maybe not get off the train entirely, but take that first step? Mm. I think I think I would challenge any fast fashion lovers to not buy any clothing for 30 days and Mm -hmm. look at what you have in your closet. Look at the accessories you have. I think that's another thing. Like you can go into a thrift store and get some beautiful like silk scarves, some, you know, cute earrings, some, you know, like the accessories. And then that can create a totally new look for the clothing you already have in your closet. So that's what I would say. Just start with 30 days. Just try to see if you cannot buy any fast fashion for 30 days and if you can restyle what you already have. That's such a great challenge. I love that idea of, you know, 30 days is doable. So that, you know, you have officially been, been the gauntlet has been passed, everybody. <laughs> you know what to do. So I'm curious to hear more about how Factory 45 works. And also just in terms of what are some of the differences that brands see when they launch sustainably versus launching with more of like a fast fashion outset? Like why should brands care? Yeah, so I think one of the, um, elements of sustainability when it comes to launching a new brand that is often overlooked and is one of, this is like the key tenant of Factory 45, and I already hinted at it a little bit earlier, is this idea of pre-selling. So when you think about launching with a pre-sale, again, your customers are, are giving you their money in advance so that you can pay to go into production and then fulfill their orders, send them their, the clothing that they purchased, you know, let's say one to three months later. That in itself is sustainable because you're not creating inventory that you don't know will be purchased and could end up sitting in your basement, in a warehouse, totally unsold. So module five of Factory 45, basically the the launch uh, module, the way that we go to market is through pre-selling, whether that is through a crowdfunding site like Kickstarter or through uh, pre-sale on your own Shopify or e-commerce store. Um, I teach another method called the virtual pop-up that happens on Instagram. So this whole idea of launching with a pre-order, why should a brand care? They should care because they are not risking their own money or their own savings and they're testing the market before they create any inventory. I'm so glad that you went into this 
you know, this concept of the pre-order more um, because I actually run my entire brand on pre-orders. Love uh, it. Yeah, I've, I started doing it a year and a half ago. Uh, honestly, for space reasons, I run my business out of a studio that is a bedroom in my parents' house. So oh, wow. I can only store so much like inventory here and, mm-hmm. and I stock 12 sizes. So because I, I offer such a wide range of sizes, I go two through 24 and that's a dozen garments. And then on top of that, you have all the different colors of each piece. It was just becoming really difficult to keep a reasonable amount of inventory so that people could shop and not have it sell out in five seconds Mm -hmm. and also be able to store it all. It just wasn't doable. So um, April of last year, I started doing pre-orders and it was, you know, you got, you have a 48 hour window, place your pre-order. And then usually it it goes out in about about a month, um, which is also one of those great benefits of New York city manufacturing and being New York city based. Cause I'm, I don't have to wait for it to sit on a boat for a long time or anything yes. like that. It's just when it's ready, it gets, it takes a day, you know, to get from Manhattan to Queens and then it goes out from there. So I can definitely give another feather in the cap of, of pre-orders. It's a great system. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, that's such a good way of like painting the picture of what it could look like, especially after you've launched. So, you know, I teach like the initial launch, but this is a way to do it just as your brand continues to grow. And, and yeah, I love it. Yeah. It's also one of the great things is that what I'll do is that I, um, so I do the pre-order and you know, the main thing with the pre-order is that it can never sell out. So the, you know, you, the garment doesn't exist. So order the size and the color that you need, and then I'll make it especially for you. And then the, the great thing is that I'll usually add in a a little bit extra to, I will keep a small amount of inventory. Um, and I can, what's great is that I have the pre-order as data to know how much inventory to bring in. Cause I can kind of track from, you know, how well something did in pre-order, how much, how well it will do afterwards with inventory. But what's even better is that once I launch, which is basically after the pre-orders have all shipped out, you almost immediately get customer feedback. And it's yes. very unusual to have customer feedback right when you launch a product, which is also really special to have. Yes. Oh my gosh. So important. I love everything you've said. <laughs> I don't even need to, 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 to harp on it. I love all of that. Thank you. One of the, you know, you mentioned this earlier, um, this, you know, the, the mentors and the alumni that come back and, and act as mentors to your students. Why is that important to have? Like, what does that add that's a little bit extra to the Factory 45 program? I think that is, that creates this, above and beyond experience to be honest I think that is one of our really unique selling points in comparison to you know the other fashion programs that may be out there um, you essentially when you come into factory 45 as an entrepreneur you know you may just have an idea in the first week of the program you're matched with a specific person who has already launched their brand has already gone through the factory 45 program and is currently doing what you want to be doing. So there, it, there's something so valuable in that, um, just to know that you have someone pretty much on call. It's, it's 24-7 text message support Monday through Friday. Um, so you can expect a response back within 24 hours from your specific mentor. Um, and then there are, you know, 12 other mentors that if you're not matched with those 12 other people, you have access to them through our twice weekly live calls. 
So we have a work, um, a mentor every week teaches a workshop on a specific topic. And then we have co-working sessions every week where a mentor runs the co-working session and you can pop in to ask questions, get feedback. So it's factory 45, you know, I kind of like get squeamish when people call it like an online course because it's it's not. It, it's really a mentorship experience. There is the online course component that, that you're going through and, you know, it's dripped out and I walk you through the roadmap in each step. But you have this one-on-one -on -one coach, consultant, cheerleader in your back pocket that makes all the difference in holding you accountable being there for kind of those tough times that obviously happen. And then of course, cheering on your wins and successes. So um, I'm, we're very, very proud of the alumni mentorship program. And I think that's, you know, become just a really cool part of the program. That does sound very cool. I'm curious if you had any mentors when you started Revolution Apparel with your business partner. Yes. I mean, we had unofficial mentors, I think, you know, we had, um, especially after kind of the success of the Kickstarter, people were like perked up to see, you know, what we were doing and wanted to get involved. We had a few um, people write like books, include us in chapters of books and they kind of became unofficial mentors. We had peer mentors. Um, and then, then one thing we did have when we eventually found our fabric, we ended up piggybacking on to an existing brand. It was another uh, clothing brand, but they were a lot bigger than us, more established, and they were putting in an order for the recycled fabric we wanted. We couldn't meet the minimums. So mm. we basically piggybacked onto their order. They let us do that um, so that we could meet uh, the quantities we needed. That's a really lucky thing to find someone yeah. who would be willing to let you do that. Yes. That was, that was an awesome, you know, they weren't exactly mentors, but I think of them kind of that way. Oh, no, they were a godsend is what yeah. they were. <laughs> yeah, for anyone listening who might not be familiar, uh, very often fa fabric mills will have minimums. Almost always they'll have minimums. And sometimes the min those minimums can be quite high. So um, one of the solutions is either you can beg and plead to let them you know, fill an order that is lower, you know, that is lower than their, than their minimum. A lot of times if it's a, a stock fabric that they know that they'll always be selling a lot, they'll let you take less than the minimum because they'll just make it and sell it to somebody else. And sometimes if, you know, those are not an option, then you can essentially combine orders. So, you know, like you're saying, Shannon, if you're able to find someone who is placing an order, let's say if the minimum is a thousand yards, if you only need 200, but you can find someone who's placing, you know, who needs 800 and you can combine, then it ends up working out for, for everyone involved. Yes. Yeah. That's, and it's very rare to find someone who is willing it's just because it's just messy like accounting wise and where does it get shipped to and and where did you yeah. ship it to did you ship it to them and then you needed to like siphon it off so this was the great thing about our supply chain was it was all within a 50 mile radius in North oh, Carolina love it yeah so it was again sustainability win but also just business win as we kind of talked about earlier it made sense um, for both both fronts that's fantastic. Oh, I love when logistical things work out well oh, like that. Me too. It makes things so much easier. I cannot believe that our time has flown by, but it, 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 it really truly has. If somebody wants to learn more about you, Shannon, about Factory 45, where can they go? 
Um, you can go to factory45.co if you want to explore the opportunity of working uh, with us and launching your brand through Factory 45. You can go um, book a free discovery call. You'll talk to Hannah, who's our director of enrollment, um, and we can just kind of figure out if, if our business goals align and if the program's a good fit for you. So that's factory45.co. Okay. And I'm going to link that in the show notes so that you can make sure to check that out if that is something that is of all that is at all interesting to you. And the last thing that I want to ask you, Shannon, is I ask this to everyone who comes on the show, and it's always interesting to see how the different answers kind of, they, they line up in some ways and diverge in others. And I'm curious to you, what does it mean to make an impact? Oh, I don't know if this is a cliche answer, but I think the first thing that came to mind was to leave your part of the world a little bit better than when you arrived. I love that. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Shannon. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rifki. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Shannon or Factory 45, the link is in the show notes. In the last episode, I spoke with Dr. Mimi Noel about her work as a radiation oncologist and what we all need to know about breast cancer prevention. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 17 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fatman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzquitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.